I'm Lisa Stone, and you're listening to Parenting Aces. Welcome to season 10 of the Parenting Aces podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Stone, and we are part of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, a proud member, I might add. This week, I have the pleasure of chatting with Katrina Adams. And those of you who have been involved in USTA tennis at all over the last decade or so definitely know who Katrina Adams is. What you may not know is that Katrina has a new book out. And so we're thrilled to have her on the pod to talk about her book and the inspiration behind it. Just to give you a little bit of background on Katrina, she grew up in the Chicago area, started playing junior tennis as a result of seeing her brothers play and at her own admission is a very visual learner. So after watching her brothers was able to get out on the court and impressed coaches right away with her abilities to hit a tennis ball and move around the court. But once uh, Katrina finished her very impressive junior career, as you'll hear about during the podcast, she wound up going to play for two years at Northwestern University, where she had a stellar college career before venturing out on the pro tour and again had some great success as a professional player then moved into coaching and moved into working with USDA eventually in different positions working her way up through the board to be not only the first black female president of USTA, but also the youngest president of USTA. So an incredible legacy that she is leaving for our sport through her volunteer efforts, through her board efforts, through her coaching efforts, and now as an author. I am really happy to welcome Katrina Adams to the podcast, and I hope you enjoy this conversation. Katrina Adams, what a pleasure to get you on the podcast. Thanks so much. Oh, Lisa, thanks for having me. I'm excited to uh, have an opportunity to chat with you. Absolutely. And you have been making the rounds. I swear I started doing research and your name just popped up everywhere. You have done a million podcasts since your new book came out, which is awesome. I'm really happy to see the word getting out and not just in tennis circles and not just in business circles, but kind of everywhere. Well, I mean, that's the point. You know, I think Own the Arena is a book that's for everyone, uh, every gender, race, ethnicity, age. Uh, it's it's really a book that many people can see themselves in it and hopefully learning something uh, in return. What I think is really cool is that you've tied that tennis narrative in through the entire book, but the book isn't a tennis book. And I heard you refer to it as sort of a this is us approach. And this is us is one of my favorite shows. So I was really excited when you said that. But can you kind of dive into that thinking a little bit more? Yeah, so it's it's more of a leadership book. It's more of a, of, of a tool, if you will, for people to say, hey, I'm really interested in making a transition from this to this. And as an athlete, it's very difficult in making transitions from, from one arena to another. And so I've found myself making multiple uh, leaps of faith from player to coach to commentator to running a youth program um, to then being uh, the head of the USTA. And, and so with that comes a lot of lessons learned and a, a lot of challenges, of course. And so what I try to relay in the book 
is that at the end of the day, if you put your mind to it, you can accomplish anything, but it takes work. It takes, and it takes support of others to bring you along and also recognize that you're standing on the shoulders of others that have given you the opportunities to move forward. So the sure. this is us type of approach is really talking about what were then current situations that I might have been in and then reflecting back on some of the tools and the light, life skills learned uh, through the sport of tennis of how those moments may have prepared me for many of these situations. And that's a message that I try to convey consistently on Parenting Aces, right? The, the reason to put your kid in tennis is because they're going to learn things on and off the tennis court that are going to serve them so well once tennis is not the main focus of their life. I'm wondering if you can share with us some specific lessons that you feel like you took from your years as a junior tennis player and maybe even a college tennis player that came back to serve you in your role as coach or your role as USTA president or now your role as author and, and speaker? Well, I think tennis in general teaches you so many life skills. I mean, it teaches you, you know, how to build your self-confidence, your self-esteem, teaches you discipline, um, resilience, to be, you know, to persevere, uh, to be a goal, a goal getter and a goal setter. And, and all, those are all the things that we need in our everyday lives now as adults. And I think in every situation, you know, I, I, I personally, I'm someone that goes into anything and says that I can do it. Uh, whether I have the, you know, whether I know what I'm doing or not, I just think that if I get in there, I'll, I'll find my way. I'll do what it takes to be the best at it. And those are some of the things that tennis has taught, taught me. You know, you lose a lot more in tennis then you win, particularly at the earlier yeah. age, right? Right. It's learning to deal with loss. I mean, that teaches you a lot of how do you rebound from that? How do you work harder? How do you get over that hump and, and not find yourself in a rut along the way? And, and those are great qualities that I've learned through my sport because, yeah, I was very successful, but I had a hell of a lot of losses along the way. And it's the same thing in business. You know, how many times have we tried to get a contract or close a deal or, and, and we didn't get it. And, and the first thing we say is, okay, back to the drawing board. What can we do differently? What did we learn from this one that can help us get the next project or close the next deal? And I, and I really contribute a lot of that to, uh, to tennis and the life skills learned um, through that sport. Can you take us through your junior tennis journey a little bit? I mean, we all know about you, you in your role as a professional player. We know about your role as USTA president. We know about your role running the Harlem Junior Tennis and Learning uh, Education Program. But, you know, finding information on you as a junior player was a little, a little trickier. Well, because media wasn't as prevalent then as, as right. it is now. So, I mean, I was a I was a top junior in pretty much every age group. Uh, I started at six years of age, played my first tournament at seven, which was the ATA Nationals. But then I started playing USTA events, I think, at the age of eight. I was playing USTA Nationals by 10 and, and went through every age group. So in the city of Chicago, Chicago District Tennis Association, uh, I want to say I was always reached number one or top three in every age group at some point. 
uh, in the Midwest section. Uh, I was number one, I think, in my 16s and 18s, but always a top tenor. And in the nation, I was probably top 20 early on, and then I slowly worked my way up. Uh, It was a very competitive group of, uh, of athletes that we had over the years, some great players that went on to play professional tennis as well. So I, I had my moments. I only won, I think, maybe two national tournaments in singles, but I was winning doubles national titles uh, from 10 and under all the way up through 18s. And you talk about the fact that you are a very visual learner and that you kind of picked up on tennis because of your older brothers playing and, and being forced to watch and not being allowed to participate until you drove the coaches crazy enough to let you on the court. I'm wondering if your parents, what their role was in your junior tennis uh, period, your development, and how your brothers were involved in your tennis development. Yeah, so my brothers quit after that summer. They hated tennis. It was, (laughs) you know, we didn't know anything about tennis. Tennis wasn't really something in our community where we grew up, although we had, you know, 10 hard courts uh, in the park walking distance where this program was. Um, But they, you know, they were only in it because it was part of the uh, Martin Luther King Boys Club. Every summer was a, a different activity. That summer was tennis, so they didn't really have mm-hmm. a choice. And then I was too young and I was tagging along. But the coach took me under his wing uh, that that fall, winter, and then the next summer. And, and life is, you know, the rest is history from there. But my parents didn't know anything about tennis. So, again, it's, you know, you're you're getting your kids in a in an activity. And then all of a sudden the coach says, Hey, I'd love to work with her and give private lessons. They're like, well, what's that? So, you know, I started doing that like once uh, on the weekend and then I joined a program on the weekend. Um, And before you knew it, my parents were up at six o'clock, seven o'clock on the weekends, you know, getting me to to tennis practice. So my, they, um, they talked to each other. My dad ended up being the one that took me to tennis. The mom was the one that stayed with the boys. Both of them were teachers. So they had full-time jobs and then full-time, obviously trying to raise us. And, um, you know, it got, it got challenging for a while because they were, you know, middle-class on teaching salaries and, you know, it was challenging for, for them, um, financially as I progressed and got better, but I had a lot of support from many coaches that either gave lessons for free or gave me a, you know, substantial discount along the way. Um, but I had the, the best support from them uh, that because they wanted they knew that it made me happy, which made them happy. And, and they saw how it was really contributing to my growth and my development um, as, a, as a young girl. I love that. Do you feel like they were model tennis parents? Or do you feel like maybe there were some things that you wanted from them that because they were busy with work and having two other children and not having grown up in the tennis world that maybe they just didn't know you needed? No, they were perfect. You know why they were perfect? Because they weren't trying to get into the weeds. They did what was necessary for me to get to practice. They provided for me to make sure that I was able to participate in certain programs. Um, You know, my dad drove me all over the country for tournaments and because they didn't play, they weren't really, in my opinion, interfering with my own thought process of trying Mm. to tell me how to play. My coaches were doing that. 
Um, they were very supportive. And of course, they learned the game over time, particularly my dad. And I, I would listen to his advice every now and then, but, uh, but they were great. And, and, and so there was no pressure. And, and if anything, I, I do recall at one point having a conversation with them. I don't know, maybe I was 15 or 16 um, and saying, you know, if there's ever, you know, we don't want you to think that we're forcing you to play. We want you to play because you want to play. So if you ever feel like this is not what you want to do, you know, don't be afraid to let us know. Because I knew they had invested so much time and energy and, and finances into me. But I, in, as I reflect back and think back, I'm almost thinking that they were saying, we can't really afford to keep you in this sport. So I hope you say you don't like it anymore. <laughs> um, and, and that wasn't the case. And, and I'm like, no, I'm all in. What are you talking about? I'm like, are you kidding me? This is awesome. And it wasn't like I was losing or not developing. I was developing and getting better and better. And, and they found a way. They sacrificed a lot for me. And I'm very grateful and thankful um, for those sacrifices. It's interesting that you're, you know, in reflecting on that, that you're realizing why they were having the conversation with you. But in the moment, I mean, how awesome that they were asking the question, you know, it, do you still love this? Do you still want to do this? Because this has to be your decision. Yes. And, and because of that, it was also a way of them saying, okay, we're holding you accountable that if we continue to provide for you, then you have to give your all and you have to do your best. And as we got, as I got older, as a teenager, you know, back in the late seventies, early eighties, I guess, we also didn't understand so much about the scholarship probability mm -hmm. of the sport. You know, uh, unlike today, everybody's talking about scholarships for their kids um, because we weren't in that space and they didn't reside in that space. I mean, we went to tennis and we came home. So they didn't really have relationships with other tennis parents to have all that tennis talk. Um, you know, we had our own lives, our own space, and our coaches were the ones that were helping us. And, you know, once we found out that I could get a tennis scholarship and that, that completely changed the whole uh, mindset for them in those last couple of years where I think it was really starting to get tough mm. financially to keep up with the opportunities for me. And I, and like I said, I got a lot of support from coaches. I was on the US, USTA national teams in the summertime, which allowed me to go and play these national tournaments week after week all over the country. I don't think they would have been able to afford to send me to many of those tournaments um, in the later years, because by that time my brothers were in college. And, and so, you know, the, Again, there were teachers in the Chicago public school system, so their salaries weren't the greatest. Um, but my dad managed his money extremely well, and 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 they both made sacrifices. I love that. I want to get to your college recruiting experience and your years at Northwestern in just a second. But a few moments ago, you mentioned playing ATA events at. Did you continue to stay involved with ATA throughout your junior development years? Um, and what role did the ATA play? Yeah, no, I played every summer, I think from 75 to 83. Uh, and then the weeks of the tournament changed. It conflicted with the USCA uh, nationals, the, the last national of the summer. 
And of course, I was a top USCA player. So I was going to play that national as opposed to the ATA. So I took, I missed maybe three years. And then I played again in 1986, played the women's event. Um, and at that time, the winner of the women's event got a wild card into the qualifying of the US Open. I ended up losing in the finals there. And then, you know, I was in college and then ended up turning pro a couple of years later. So um, the ATA was definitely something that I looked forward to every single year. I mean, I would play two events, two age groups, singles and doubles. And uh, I think I won all of the age groups throughout my career. Um, my ATA tenure from 10 and unders all the way up to 18 and unders. Wow. And, and it's great. And I'm involved. I'm involved in an advisory role, um, you know, today. It's, a, it's an organization that's been... Uh, was found in 1916 for primarily uh, people of color, uh, black people who weren't allowed to play in USLTA events back then. And to this day, it's it continues to have their national championships every summer. Uh, it's majority black, but it is it is diverse. Um, they welcome other other races to come and play, but um, it is is primarily known as a black tennis organization. Can you talk a little bit about growing up as a black athlete at a time when, as you just said, black athletes weren't always welcome in the white world of tennis um, and how that has informed choices that you've made as an adult, where to spend your time, where to give back, where to invest, um, not just financially, but with your expertise and, and your time on boards, et cetera. Yeah. Talk about in the book. Um, I think I talk about in the book that I, you know, I never knew that tennis wasn't a black sport. When I started, I started in a black program with black coaches, went to another black program, played my first tournament, which was black, which is ATA. And, you know, I, I, and I grew up in a black, in a black community. Um, mm -hmm. Not until I started playing my local other tournaments, my CDTA tournaments. And then I show up and I'm like the only black and I'm like, Hey, where is everybody? <laughs> it was a little weird, you know, initially, but you know, I had such a great personality of, of forming friends. Um, you know, I wasn't shy about that and, and, and had some great friends, some that are still lifelong friends to this day that, that I played doubles with when I was 10 or nine. Um, and my, you know, my parents were, because they were teachers, they also had friends who were white and, and other ethnicities that we would go to their homes for, you know, different parties or dinners or what have you. So it wasn't like I wasn't introduced to other societies or other groups. So it really didn't make that big of a difference for me um, growing up. And I just knew that, you know, in order for me to kind of rise above any kind of inflection or of negativity from anyone else that I had to be the best one. And so that's what I worked hard to do and to where, you know, I'm number one, you got to come beat me. So right. you can't put me down or say that I'm not worthy or I don't belong here when in fact, maybe you don't because you're not better than me. So that was a kind of mentality that I, I had that I think got me through um, that period. But again, being from Chicago is very different than being from, you know, other parts of the country. I didn't really... Um, so I wasn't subjective to uh, a lot of racist remarks. And if they were, my dad, you know, got them and I never heard them. 
and, and they protected me from that situation. The only challenge I remember is playing in, in the national tournament in Birmingham, Alabama in the early, in the early eighties of which my parents didn't want me to go. Mm-hmm. Um, Cause they're, they're from Mississippi. They know how the South was or knew how the South was. The mentality was at a country club, you know, blacks mm-hmm. weren't really welcome at country clubs. And, and this was one of those clubs. Um, and so, you know, I remember walking in through the, the front entry of the gates um, of, the, of, the, of the club, uh, my dad, and I'm just bopping around, just clueless to, clueless to what was going on. And, you know, my father, I mean, the people that we saw that were black were all workers mm-hmm. and started to stand tall with such pride in that when I walked in or when we walked in or kind of nod or uh, give a, get, give a wink as a way we kind of communicate with each other. And that was really when I kind of was like, wow, this is really weird. Um, mm. But okay. And then I went on to play the tournament. So um, I was, I was lucky. And I think it's because I was from Chicago it was because of how I was raised. And it was because of the mentality that I, that I had that, I belong anywhere I, anywhere I step foot in. So mm. I never felt inferior to anyone or anything. What do you attribute that attitude toward? I mean, that's a pretty advanced, mature way of looking at things, even as a 16, 17, 18-year-old, right? Well, part of it is the way that I was raised. My parents, you know, had instilled that in, in each of us, that, you know, we, we are just as smart and able as everyone else. Sure. Um, <laughs> there's a chapter in the book that I call baby woman because my mom and others used to say that I've been here before, you know, at the, the rifle age of three, I was like being a boss. And, uh, and I knew every, I knew where things were. I was organized and they were like, where did you come from? You came here before. You know? <laughs> my mother's like, and I was like, I don't, I, she's like, I had you, but I don't know if I brought the right one home. <laughs> um, but I just something that's been instilled with me from a very early age. It sounds like you were born that way. I have a kid like that too. We call her an old soul. See, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Totally get that. Um, What made you decide to go to Northwestern? Were you at the end of your junior tennis career? Were you contemplating turning pro Um, and why college? And why Northwestern? Other than the obvious, it was in North in uh, Chicago. Yeah. So I graduated from high school at 16. I was a young Ooh. graduate and okay. uh, I had won the Illinois high school state championship my junior and senior year. So Northwestern and other Illinois schools knew that I was a senior. The rest of the country didn't know I was a senior because <laughs> I, was 16. I was 16 or I just turned 17 entering my freshman year of college. So I was 16 when at the time of recruitment. So no one knew that I was a senior and it's very different then than now. Everything of course was done by paper. Uh, We, I always, you know, I grew up knowing about Northwestern because I lived 35, 40 minutes away. Uh, Their men's team practiced at a club where I practice. So I saw these guys coming in these beautiful purple warmups, you know, every day. And I'm like, Purple was one of my favorite colors. And I was like, God, what's that? So my coach was, oh, Northwestern. You know, let me tell you about Northwestern. And um, I always felt all that 
one, I always knew that I would turn pro at some point, but I had no uh, intention of doing it right after high school because mm-hmm. I was saying, I'm like, what? I'm like, I'm going to college. Are you, t- are you kidding me? And my parents were teachers. So I didn't have a choice. Yeah. <laughs> and, and so everything started to fall into place. You know, I, as my goals were set after I played professional tennis, I wanted to be a commentator or go into broadcasting. Northwestern had the number one communications was the number one yep. communication school at the time. Their, their women's team was number six or eight. They were top 10 in the nation. So it all sounded great, but we didn't have the best facilities. We didn't have an indoor facility. We actually had to wow. drive to a club for practice every day. Well, for me, that was no different than what I was doing every day anyways. Right. I didn't understand um, what it would have been like to go to a school like they had the facility there now to just walk walk to uh, practice. But on the other side, I wanted to go to like California. I wanted mm-hmm. to go to UCLA or USC, somewhere that was warm. They were both top 10 in the nation. And I had my eyes set on, you know, just getting away and going, going somewhere warm. And no one recruited me. And, and I, you know, I took it personally, but Northwestern had recruited me was, and continued to recruit. And I signed a letter of intent and, uh, you know, I had a great weekend on my recruiting trip and I'm like, oh, I'm all in. I'm definitely (laughs) all in. And uh, come to find out, no one knew that I was a senior. So once I signed, I started getting all these phone calls and all these letters and and scholarship Mm -hmm. offers and, I mean, the mail would come in, you know, every day like this with letters. And my parents were like, what is going on here? What are all these letters? And I'm open. I'm like, they're offering me a scholarship. They're offering me a scholarship. And they're like, oh, no, you're going to Northwestern. You already have a scholarship. And and then I'm like, yeah, no, I am. But this is cool. But that, yeah. was, that was really that whole process. Very different today. Right. You know, you've got all that information at your fingertips. Kids know how to reach out to coaches. Parents, for sure, know how to do it. And um, But I, it was the right place for me at the right time. Awesome. And after two years, you decided it was time to turn pro. You're 18, almost 19, I guess, when you made that decision. Um, what was life like on the pro circuit? Uh, life was great. Was great. Um, again, you know, I was always a little more mature than my age. So you know, I had won the NCAA doubles championship my sophomore year. I would have been returning as the number three singles player in the country. Um, my coach knew that it was time. She actually thought I was going to turn pro after my freshman year. So she always says she got a bonus year out of me. Oh. And and so that transition uh, was great and was made easier for me because when I went on the road, I automatically started working with Zena Garrison and her coach. I was training with them. I was sharing rooms with her. You know, she was, they were both kind of teaching me the ropes, if you will, as the the do's, the don'ts, and you make your own decisions on other things. And and so it was an easy transition. Um, I, I won't say that I went out and started winning right away, but I started having great success early. So that also makes it easier because it's, it felt normal. Um, just kind of a continuation of what I was doing in school. 
I wasn't winning, winning tournaments every week, but I was winning some, particularly in doubles. And so I think it made it a lot easier for me um, in, the, in that first year with that transition. And I, I've always traveled. I mean, tennis is a sport that you're traveling. As I said, I, my first tournament, I was seven um, in New Orleans. So uh, I love to travel. And, and so that was, uh, it wasn't so bad for me. Yeah. That's awesome. I mean, and it's unusual to go out on tour and start winning right away, right? There are many players that go on tour and they have years and years before they start winning tournaments, even matches. Right. And it's a big transition. Um, it's it's pretty special that you were able to get out there and have that success early on. Let's jump ahead. You've you're done with your pro career. You've done some coaching. You've done some commentating, as you said, which was one of your goals. And now you're getting really involved in the power structure of USTA, um, seeing that kind of uh, opportunity to lead the organization looming in front of you. What was going through kind of your mind, what was your thought process on, okay, I'm, I'm being tapped to lead this organization that runs this sport that has been such a huge part of my life. What is my role going to be? What is my legacy going to be once I get there? And, you know, what are my hopes and dreams for the governing body of tennis in the U.S.? Yeah. So, you know, our structure with the USCA is, is very different than most. So I, you know, I started out on the board um, in 2005. And so for all of those years, I was learning more and more about the organization. Um, I was contributing a lot of time, uh, adding a lot of value. And I would say about six years in that I start to think maybe, or maybe eight years in that maybe, you know, I'd, I'd love to be the leader someday. Um, and once I was nominated and, and, and appointed as a vice president, as an officer, that really got me to thinking differently that I could go all the way. Um, and so I started viewing the business different. I started listening different and, and starting to say, what would I do? Um, and, and that's kind of how I developed uh, the desire to, uh, to be the chairman and president and, and CEO at the time. And, um, and I came in, you know, not recognizing all of the firsts that were going to come with the title. Mm -hmm. But once I did, I also, I recognized all of the pressures that were also going to come with all of the firsts. And, and so, you know, I, I stood tall and it was very proud to, to be the first, um, in hopes of not being the last. Right. And, and making sure that I represented not only myself, my family extremely well, but the organization extremely well, and really a, a whole race um, of people uh, were counting on me and, and supporting me. And I, and I felt that um, throughout my tenure and being uplifted by that. But you know, we were already an organization that was focusing on diversity and inclusion. And I wanted to take it to another level and really start to, you know, we have four pillars that have been primarily the, the diverse pillars of the organization, which are African-Americans, uh, Asian-Americans, uh, Hispanics, and uh, LGBTQ plus. Mm -hmm. And I knew our NJTLs were really covering 
a lot of our African-American communities, kids were engaged, they were playing. We had a lot of players on tour that were being successful. So things that we were doing and had in place were working. Um, also, thanks to the success of Venus and Serena, we're inspiring a lot of these kids to even want to get in our sport. But many of them came through some of these programs. Um, but one of the, and I knew we had a lot of Asian Americans that were playing the sport, perhaps not at the highest level, um, but we did have a couple on tour and we go back and look at Michael Chang and, and kind of that era of getting other Asian Americans that had turned pro and, and had some success. But what we didn't have were a lot of Hispanics and Latinos, particularly American uh, Hispanics and American um, Latinos. And so we weren't, we didn't have a lot of programming in their communities. And many of these communities idolize soccer or football. And, and so we had to figure out how to introduce the sport to these communities, sending in the right messenger with the right mm -hmm. message to engage and be all inclusive and not just for the kids, but really bring the family into the sport because right. we're a family sport. Um, and, you know, we want grandma and grandpa coming out here too, you know, on our short courts with our kids and we had some great success the first couple of years. And then, um, you know, our, our country's administration changed and it kind of changed the mindset of a lot of these groups now wanting to sign up for different programs. And we mm -hmm. lost that momentum. But, you know, I had a vision there and it, it was successful. And, um, you know, I learned a lot in the process. I learned a lot from working with my board members because your board members are the ones that are making the decisions to... Uh, put things through so that our staff could go out and, and implement them and working with our senior staff. And we had some of the best leaders within the organization that worked extremely hard and, and, you know, made the organization successful. So it was a collective effort from everyone, not just me. Yeah. Yeah. It's great. And I mean, I, I feel like right now USTA is getting kind of hammered there. There was a change that was launched January one with, with regard to junior competition, junior rankings, and things aren't working as everybody had hoped they were going to work. There's a lot of technical stuff going on behind the scenes that still isn't right, but hopefully is on track to getting corrected. Um, but I still feel like there is an important role for USDA to play in the world of junior tennis development. What is your philosophy on the role USTA has or should have on developing young players in our sport? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the programs that many of our kids in are USTA programming, um, you know, for, from your local district, um, you know, your NJTLs, your CTAs, many of your park district programs, a lot, you know, if you're playing junior team tennis, it's a USTA program. Right. And so, you know, if you're playing tournaments, USCA tournaments, they're USCA tournaments. There's a lot of other leagues that are out there, but you know, it's important that USCA is growing and developing the sport of tennis. And for every racket that goes in a kid's hand it is a win for USCA because whether they become a recreational player, that's only going to play maybe high school level at that, that's fine because they may be in the sport for the rest of their lives. If someone that starts to play tournaments and goes out and even play ITF tournaments and then ultimately become a professional player, that's fine. If it's a player that's able to use the sport to play in college, 
whether it's club level tennis or varsity tennis, that's fine. So there is a role for the USTA. We are the national governing body of tennis in America. And so there's a lot that comes behind that. Um, if you want to play on our Fed Cup or now Billie Jean King Cup teams or our Davis Cup teams or for the Olympics, it's under the USTA. And obviously the pandemic did not help um, with having to make a lot of cuts on the inside from staff first because we barely had a U.S. Open. And so mm -hmm. the money we make from the U.S. Open goes back into developing our sport and goes into the programs, into the sections around the nation. And so right. um, it's important that we have a U.S. Open this year or things are going to be uh, that much tougher. Um, but having said that, you know, what it did, the pandemic, pandemic did offer was for people to go out on their own and play in their parks and play in their community tennis courts, uh, either for the first time or after not having played for 10, 20, 30 years for some of the people that I've spoken to. And, and so tennis is on the upswing again with people playing. And so it's important that we have the opportunities and programs in place at all of our facilities that we partner with um, to keep developing and growing the sport. Yeah. I mean, the pandemic really has been a great opportunity for tennis to kind of reemerge as a popular sport. And we've seen that growth, you know, the numbers, the reports just came out that, you know, the growth has been tremendous over the last year. We see the health organizations saying, yeah, tennis is safe, go out and play, get outside, get some fresh air, get some exercise. So it, you know, when you're trying to find those silver linings uh, during a pandemic, this is one of them, which I think is awesome. Where does tennis go from here, though? Because there's still a lot of obstacles out there for the sport. Now we're seeing paddle tennis emerge and, and all of these other kind of variants on uh, racket sports emerging and kind of taking some of the attention away from traditional tennis. Is that good or bad for tennis? I think it's great. I mean, I think, you know, racket sports are racket sports. And I think one sport transfers into another sport. So I think you may have a lot of people that may be entering pickleball um, in an earlier age that says, you know what, this is great, but I want to, I want to get more action or, you know, bigger court, whatever, whatever their mindset might be that will transfer over into tennis because they're developing, developing the hand-eye coordination through pickleball, which is what you need in tennis. So they'll feel a lot more comfortable coming over and playing tennis and then we have players that are playing tennis that maybe just can't move around as much on a bigger court and they're going to pickleball. You know, tennis, you know, we have three different courts. We have 36 foot courts, 60 foot courts and 78 foot courts. And it's up to you to decide which court you want to play on and have fun with. Tennis is about having fun. So no matter what sport you play, hopefully you're playing it for the, the element of having fun and getting a workout. And I think tennis is definitely will continue to grow. Uh, this, there's a lot of opportunity and, and challenges that we've had. Like you said, you know, trying to switch over to digital process is not easy. Um, and, and anytime you're doing that, you're going to have some hiccups. But as soon as you get through them, then it's smooth sailing from there. And I think once we can overcome some of those obstacles that have occurred earlier this year with some of the new rollouts, it'll make it a lot easier for people to manage your facilities, manage your court times, manage your lessons, 
uh, manage their tournaments, et cetera. And, you know, it's COVID has impacted us on our tournament side. We, sure. we canceled pretty much all of the tournaments, national tournaments last year for the safety of our players and, and families and coaches and, and administrators. Um, we got a lot of heat for that, but how can you give, how can you give a lot of heat for uh, wanting to, to provide a safe yeah. environment? Because when you have large tournaments, you have a large group of people. We want you to go and play tennis in smaller groups and two or four people on the court and you're not gathering at a tournament desk checking in 20 people at a time, right? Sure. So we we had to err on the safety and health of everyone. And hopefully we can start to slowly bring those national events back in 2021. Um, but I know some of the smaller tournaments in the, um, in the local communities and the sections have continued, but because they're smaller and they're able to space things out to make it a safe environment. Um, but yeah, tennis is, tennis is growing. I mean, if you, if you're watching it, um, if you watch Australian open and, and now I think they're in Doha and, and Rotterdam, uh, you know, it's a lot of young players that are emerging. That's that will ignite and excite some of the young players to want to start to emulate many of these players. So I think the next generation is definitely uh, on the uprise. Yeah, for sure. And as we're recording this, the national L one is happening down in Mobile, Alabama. And um, there've been some issues around that with um, just kind of on the technical side, but hopefully the tournament directors who are incredibly experienced, the Novaks do an amazing job down there. I'm sure they will put on an event that everybody is pleased with in, in the long run, but um, great facility. I mean, Mobile's been running national tournaments for many, many years. And and again, um, last year they didn't get to play and now they're bringing it back. We have a couple kids from my, Hardham Junior Tennis and Education Program down there. We have one boy and one one girl awesome. that are participating, and so you know we're a little weary about them going, but we're like, hey, you know, you you know how to behave in in a COVID environment. Just be safe, uh, keep your distance, play your matches, and 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 go. Mm-hmm. Um, so hopefully, there won't be uh, any issues with health concerns coming out of the tournament. Uh, wish them the best of luck. And, and hopefully, uh, you know, they're they're kickstarting what can happen the remainder of the year for our tournaments. For sure. For sure. Now that you are immediate past president of USTA, what's no, your day? Just the past president. Oh, just past president. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Past what is now the immediate past president. That's true. That's true. My apologies. What is your day-to-day involvement, if any, uh, with USTA or you know, how are you continuing to stay involved with USTA? What's your role? Well, I'm a past president for life, uh, which uh, puts it, I have a seat on the governance committee. So I'm still involved in the semi-annual and annual meetings. Um, Our annual meeting is always around the springtime. It'll be virtual this year. uh, As as I think the semi-annual will be as well, which is typically around the U.S. Open. Mm -hmm. So, um, still privy to certain mailings that come out. Um, I'm very involved. You know, I, I have great relationship with uh, much of our staff and um, you know, so I may reach out or, or find, you know, let them know, Hey, I'm here. If there's any way that I can help. I mean, last year I was, I finished my tenure as a board member, so I'm no longer on the board um, and just on the governance committee and the international committee 
um, as I'm the vice president of the ITF and the chairperson of the Billie Jean King Cup Committee and the Gender Equality and Tennis Committee. So we have an international committee for those that are representing us on the ITF to come and bring those those messages back um, to the USTA for discussion. Yeah, so you're not busy at all. <laughs> well, that's, that's just my USCA volunteer. I, I mean, it's crazy. I got my program. I now have the book that's released. Um, you know, I sit on multiple boards or advisory boards. So, uh, yeah. And and when I finish this, I'm going to be heading down to Harlem to the program for the afternoon. I love it. I want to get back to college tennis for a minute. There's been kind of some, not kind of, there's been some really negative stuff in the news recently um, involving college tennis. And I know that as a former college tennis player yourself, you see the value in college tennis and you understand that having college tennis available to young players here in the U.S. and internationally is an important piece of the overall growing tennis puzzle, right? Um, where, What is USTA's role? What is the national governing body's role in college tennis? And what... What should be their role if it's not already existing? Yeah, I mean, so when I was involved, I know we our USTA player development, we use college tennis as a pathway for development. Um, the majority of the kids are going to go to college. It'd be a very small percentage that will actually be professional tennis players. So it's advantageous for us to have relationships and partnerships with the NCAA, with college tennis, to make sure that we are a pathway for colleges to recruit our best players. And, you know, we have division one, division two, and division three schools, obviously division one are those that are offering the scholarships, but two and three still have great competitive teams. And we have a lot of, of our best kids that have chosen to go to a D two or three or three school because of what that school is offering academically and what their, their, um, ultimate goal is and, and pass up some of these scholarships that they have been offered. At well, D2. and D2 does offer scholarships as well. And, and D3, you know, I just, I know, you know, this, but for our audience, it's really important to understand that oftentimes you can get academic scholarships at D3 schools that outweigh the amount of the D1 scholarships. Yeah, through athletics. yeah that's what yeah. we're saying. So it's advantageous to make sure that we have, a, a streamline of players that are going into college. And so it, it's definitely a developmental pathway um, for our USDA player development. Awesome. And, you know, it's uh, with COVID, you know, a lot of teams, uh, a lot of schools have dropped our teams because we're non-revenue teams. And every so many years, you know, tennis is always on the chopping block when there's a crisis financially for these institutions. And they really need to look at the value that, tennis players not only are bringing to your school, but what they're bringing into uh, the business world after that. And I mean, so many people hire, um, hire their employees because they see tennis on their CV because mm -hmm. they know that, wow, you play tennis. Oh, you played college tennis. Well, wow, you're, you're motivated, you're disciplined, you're a hard worker. You understand, um, out losses, you know, you understand how to win. I definitely want you at our company. And, and we're such a great value because we're, tennis is year round. It's not just, 
you know, one, two or three months, like many of the other sports are. Mm -hmm. and, um, so it's challenging, but hopefully we can continue to help save many of the programs, um, you know, from a USCA perspective. I know anytime schools are on the chopping block, when I was a president, I received uh, messages from coaches or players and I'd write letters on behalf of the USCA to the president of that institution or, or to the NCAA um, to rethink uh, their, their intent of cutting this, those teams. Well, and you mentioned, you know, the value of college tennis players to organizations looking to hire. And this is a great transition back to your book, which, again, for those who may have missed the beginning, it's called Own the Arena, Getting Ahead, Making a Difference and Succeeding as the Only One. And just for my listeners and viewers, there'll be a link to Katrina's book in the show notes on ParentingAces.com. But your, your chapters in the book focus on owning different aspects of your life, right? Owning the arena, yes, that's the big picture, but owning, you know, your spot at the table, owning your place in the room, or owning your place on a board, and owning your tennis development is kind of a precursor to being able to own these other areas of your life, can you kind of bring us back to that mindset or your way of thinking about tennis preparing you and preparing others to own all of these different facets? Absolutely. And it, and it does. Uh, tennis is, as I mentioned earlier, has so many different facets of, of teaching us to become the people that we are through the life skills that we've learned. And so when I talk about, owning the arena. It's, I'm talking about owning your courage through tennis. You know, we're courageous every time we go out on the court because we know that one will emerge as a winner. One will emerge as a loser. And if you don't win, then you're in the other category, but you have to be courageous to have to go back out there the next week or the mm -hmm. next day to play, right? Owning your losses. We lose a lot more in tennis than we, than we win, but learn from those losses, allow ourselves to develop more skills that are needed to accomplish whatever that is. Owning your, owning your wins, owning your successes, you know, be, be humble in, in those successes so that there are more that, that can follow and not, you know, walk around with your head in the, in the sky too often. You want to own your voice, be able to speak out, be able to be heard, um, particularly if you're knowledgeable you know, don't be speaking out if you don't know what you're talking about. But, um, you know, have ownership in, in everything that we're doing or that you're doing so that you have the ability to own your arena. And your arena is whatever space that might be. We ultimately own our destiny if we put all these things in place and, and work hard at it and believe in it. But we have to be prepared. We have to understand that there are going to be some obstacles. There are going to be ups and downs. You know, own own your network of people that you're dealing with and that you're working with that are going to be there to support you for you, not because it's advantageous for them. And so many other things that are in the book that um, reference owning. But, you know, I think each chapter and these are my 12 winning match points. And, and one is applied to each chapter of the story that you just read within that chapter, because I think as we own our <clears throat> obligations to do better or to move forward, 
we're being accountable for for what we've done. And, and so that's really the gist of it. Um, there's a lot of great stories in Own the Arena, uh, some business stories, some personal stories, um, some fun stories. And I think that everyone can find themselves in many of the stories um, that might relate to them in, in some way. As you were writing the book, did you have a target audience in mind? You know, not initially, but, um, you know, the, the reference of the only one is really being the only woman in the room or the only black person or, or person of color in a room. And, mm-hmm. and so that's, that's really what that reference is. And so it really teaches you or gives you some examples as to how I felt, how I may have overcome that and how you as a reader may be able to overcome that. Because Lisa, as you know, as women, it's hard for us to even get a word in in some of these meetings when we're the only one or one of two in the room and or what we say may be overlooked by our peers, our, our male counterparts in the room and then taken away by someone else. And you're like, wait a minute, I said that earlier, but you, you're responding to him, you're not responding to me. So there's a lot of different lessons that are in there. The demographics really, I would say obviously are women um, I would say it's uh, 28 to 60, anybody in the work, work field. Um, but it's really for, for men and women um, of all ages, because I think, as I said, you can find yourself in many of these stories and apply them to uh, what you're experiencing in your lives today, or that can help put you on the track where you want, where you want to go. And, you know, just from my own perspective, I feel like this is an important book for young people to read too, male and female, because we know that in order for things to improve for women and to improve for people of color or to improve for people in the LBT, LBTGQ plus community, but I want to make sure to include them all, in order for things to improve, everybody else has to change the way that they're approaching these situations as well. You have to first be aware that there is an issue that, that people who don't look like you may be treated differently or may be perceived differently. And then you have to change the way you interact, right. And provide opportunities and, and, um, kind of understand the discomfort that may be present and, take action to help people move away from that discomfort to start to feel comfortable speaking their voice, right? Sharing their opinions. And so I I think it's, it's so appropriate that we're doing this podcast during women's history month, first of all. Um, So I thank you for being part of the podcast during this important time, but also in light of some things coming out in the news about how women are being treated, how people of color are being treated, what those of us not in those groups, what our culpability is in that and what our responsibility is moving forward to eliminate these barriers. Um, and so I think it's it's important for everyone. Yeah, at the end of the day, Lisa, we have to realize that we're all human and we're all different, but we're all striving for the same things. And so sure. love is going to get us to the mountaintop and, and hatred. There's no place for hatred. And, and you know, I, I, I like to say, in spite of my differences, I am where I am, not because of them. And, and it's, and that's for anybody. And it's, we have to look at each other as, as two women 
that are having a conversation that are, you know, have the same goals here and getting this message across and not a, a black woman and a white woman. We're just two women that are here um, having a conversation. And if we could take that out into society, into everything that we're doing, then the world would be a better place. Absolutely. And, you know, I tell parents all the time through this platform, the goal of junior tennis isn't to create a tennis champion. It isn't to create, you know, the number one player in the world. It's to wind up with a great human being at the end of the road, somebody that you're proud to call your son or daughter, somebody that you have a great relationship with moving forward into their adulthood. And these types of conversations are the things that spark that, right, that lead to that outcome. Yeah. And, and, and recognize that everyone comes from a bit different background. And so, you know, everyone has challenges and everyone has obstacles that they're trying to overcome. And you know, because they're different from yours doesn't doesn't make you better or worse than someone. And, yeah. and it's it's important to make sure that you're supporting one another. Right. Right. Absolutely. Well, Katrina Adams, thank you so much. The book is called, once again, Own the Arena, Getting Ahead, Making a Difference and Succeeding as the Only One. It's available on ParentingAces.com if you check out the show notes. And yeah, and it's right behind Katrina, Katrina in her stunning red dress, standing there all proud and and in her just wonder of just taking over. I just love it. I think you have given women a voice. You've given people of color a voice. You've given the tennis world a voice, which I think is equally important. Well, maybe not equally important, but also really important. And um, thank you for sharing your time with us. Oh, thank you for having me, Lisa. I really enjoyed it and um, hope you really enjoyed the book. Absolutely loved it and uh, can't wait to put it out there for everybody to enjoy as well. To my viewers, listeners, thank you so much for tuning in. We'll catch you next time on Parenting Aces. I'm Lisa Stone and you've been listening to the Parenting Aces podcast. For tennis parents, by a tennis parent. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe to us and write a review on iTunes. For more information on navigating the junior and college tennis journey, please visit us online at ParentingAces.com. Thanks for tuning in and sharing us with your tennis community.